Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Jay Moore, founder and CEO of Hedgepool, the peer-to-peer platform for buy-side users of the FX markets. Uh, Jay, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Dominic, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Now, as the name of the organization, Hedgepool, suggests, uh, you have a pretty specific focus on on hedging activity. Can you tell us why that is? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, for anyone who knows me, I've been in the FX hedging space for about 20 years between State Street, BBH running their overlay programs. And, you know, some of the themes that we've seen over the years uh, have really evolved much more towards transparency, best execution, you know, the, the nature of liquidity. Um, and, and, you know, so when in, in my background is passive hedging, you know, we saw uh, acting on behalf of large asset managers, asset owners, uh, sovereign wealth funds, that there was such a natural sort of liquidity pool that was sort of unreachable, if you will, in that, you know, you have European hedgers of US dollars, you have US hedgers of euros, um, and in the current market structure, everyone has to really transact because of the forward nature of the, the, these swaps. Um, they have to trade through banks where they have credit relationships and ISDAs and documentation in place. And so everything sort of funnels in through a very sort of small um, you know, range of banks who are there for providing liquidity. Um, and so there's you know, these elements of cost that we're trying to sort of uh, eliminate by kind of rethinking how the swaps market is structured so that you know, the buy side can access liquidity uh, amongst each other, hence the sort of peer-to-peer nature of what we do and the name Hedge Pool. Right, so you're actually trying to restructure this end of the market. In order for people watching to, to understand that, can you tell us a little bit about how asset managers uh, and big funds, SWFs, uh, even corporates are, are hedging risks at the moment. How are they doing it? What's the inefficiency that they are experiencing now, which you're looking to fix? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, the, the, the asset manager community, for example, right? You have a large international bond fund um, here in the U.S. with exposures all over the world into various securities um, with foreign exchange risk. You buy a European bond, you have to buy euros in order to purchase the bond. Therefore, you have the bonds return as well as the exposure to euros. Uh, in many cases, the volatility of foreign exchange is something that, you know, is, 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 is preferred to be avoided. So, you know, the mandate of these funds are to fully hedge back to U.S. dollars using forwards. So in most cases, what you would do is you would sell a one or a three month forward and tenor is completely bespoke, but those are the common tenors of the forward and the PL of the forward itself is going to offset the underlying exposure of the currency and, and therefore wash it out and isolate the, the security or the holdings. So these are funds or like you said, sovereign wealth funds. It could be asset owners, pension plans. Uh, it could be share classes that are being distributed into other you know, uh, jurisdictions that create this, this cross-border currency risk. And the mandated hedging programs are all doing the same thing, right? These are passive programs that either managers or the investment teams of these uh, institutions have to basically trade on a regular repeatable cadence to manage and maintain their hedging mandate. So the forward market uh, or the swaps market 
is, for example, if you put on a one month forward today um, and it expires at the end of March, as you approach the, the, the end of March, you have to roll that position forward just to maintain it. So if you have a billion euros of exposure, you hedge out 1 billion euros against dollars and you continuously do that um, you know, through the life of the mandate. So it becomes this very predictable uh, but required trading pattern that again, you have US managers and institutions who are hedging foreign currencies back to dollars. You have Europeans hedging dollars back to euros, Japan, Australia, you name it. Hedging is an incredibly universal topic. Um, and you know, quite frankly, it's created the largest market in the world in FX, uh, or I should say the largest segment of the largest market in the world in FX with the, the swaps. And you know, the most current BIS report from the Bank of International Settlements who does a triannual report, um, and the last one was 2019, showed that the fastest growing part of the foreign exchange market was the swaps. Uh, and they attribute that um, speculatively, not, not based on quantitative data, but the, the data shows that, um, the story shows that it's really related to the increased nature or need for hedging. So this, this again, this liquidity is happening at a cadence, but there's no, there's no real way for the buy side institutions to source liquidity from each other where there's a natural passive need for offsetting um, positions. And therefore the banks play a very important role because of the credit nature of that relationship. So just crudely speaking, what's going on here is that uh, organizations are hedging the FX risk back to the base currency assets, portfolio assets, but also share classes, which may be issued in, in different currencies. They, they wanna hedge them back to the base currency of the fund. That's the area of the market you're, you're focused on. Uh, yeah, right? it's, that, that's right. I mean, really anything passive in nature where the intent of the hedge is purely just to neutralize a risk that is part of an investment mandate, which like you've pointed out, share class hedging is a really big um, part of that market as is portfolio hedging, as is corporate balance sheet hedging, as is treasuries. I mean, it's really a, a, a universal um, issue across the market. Right. There's, a, there's a lot going on there, including a lot of operational <laughs> stuff. Can you tell us where does your service actually start and where does it end? In other words, tell us what, what you're really doing to help in these areas you very clearly defined that you're involved in. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things maybe I'll start with is saying what, what we're not, right? We're, we're not a liquidity aggregator. We're not an ECN. Um, we're, we're, we're not an overlay manager, right? So we're not substituting the need for either an in-house process to manage and maintain your hedging program. Um, there are very qualified um, hedging providers, whether they're you know, institutions I've worked for in the past or, or, or the growing number of others out there, uh, both bank and independent um, or in-house. And so, you know, because of that, those, those, those things are very well managed. Um, what, we, what we are, where we come in is as and when these repeatable hedging roles, the need for, um, you know, to, to maintain that hedge on an ongoing basis, um, it, what we're, we come in is to try and align the, the hedgers themselves into a common pool of liquidity uh, around a sort of scheduled liquidity event, right? Whether that's month end or quarterly IMM dates, we're trying to pull liquidity in um, so that they can match off with each other. So we're really kind of a, um, a discovery. We're an exchange, if you will. 
We're, we're not the counterparty. We take no market risk. We're purely just allowing through technology um, passive hedgers to discover uh, their liquidity amongst each other, which is currently sort of um, you know behind the curtain of the banks that they have trading relationships with today. So what you're really running is a a peer-to-peer or trying to create here is a peer-to-peer market or network focused on those hedges and their hedging events. You're not looking to be a specialist advisor. You're not looking to compete with the custodian banks. And I ask you that because you've obviously worked at a couple of custodian banks and um, you know, I, I, I back in the day that most asset managers seem very content to leave that sort of work, you know, share class hedging, for example, and portfolio hedging to their uh, custodian banks. So I'm, I'm wondering, given the, what you're trying to do here, um, how much has changed in the minds of these hedgers? What's, what's going on inside the marketplace that makes it possible for you to do what you are doing? Are asset managers, corporates, pension funds more focused on this now than they used to be? I, I think that there's a few things to say about that. I mean, what, one is that, yes, there's more hedging going on. It, it is a fast growing part of the industry and therefore the volumes in the swaps market are, in, are growing very quickly, yet it's still very fragmented. And, and, and what does fragmentation do, right? It creates layers of cost. And so again, because of the nature of the swaps, these are forward contracts, right? So they're one month or three month or, or beyond. Um, there's a credit element between a bank and the buy side. So for example, if you're an asset manager and you're running a fund and you've got um, credit relationships with five banks on the street uh, through ISDAs and collateral arrangements or whatever that the terms are of that relationship, you are sort of bound to those five banks for getting a price on your position. And at the same time, you might have a peer um, who's doing the exact opposite thing with their own five banks. And maybe there's overlap, maybe there's not. But either way, you have to call that bank or your banks and get a price. And the banks then need to manage the risk of pricing you as their counterparty. So there's a market risk transfer element of that price that's included. And so the things that go into that price are very, the very basics of it is that there's a credit relationship. When I do a trade with a bank, that trade goes on the bank's balance sheet. The balance sheet has an impact uh, or has a cost. Uh, so, so from a capital requirement perspective, there's a cost to hold that position on a balance sheet. And therefore, there's th- that's sort of the sort of measurable component of the fee, which is currently in the market structure today, undisclosed. It's just kind of baked in. Above that, there's the risk transfer, right? So the fact that I'm going to take a position as a bank off your hands and, and hope that I can either trade out of it for profit or manage myself out to, you know, to at a small enough, um, you know, I guess gain that, you know, it makes sense to do. Um, on top of that, there's technology, right? Platform fees, the connection of how you transfer that position to me and or communicate that position to me. Um, there's compliance, traders, risk, all of these things, lie, you know, add up into what goes into that bank's spread. And then the bank manages the risk on the other side. And one of the, you know, so, so all of that cost is because of that sort of filtered relationship between the banks and the, the managers. Uh, now, if you could eliminate the market risk transfer because you know there's somebody on the other side that's, do, that's doing exactly the opposite to you and you have you know, this, this, this commitment to give each other that liquidity on an ongoing basis, all of those costs can disappear 
except for credit. So what we've done is separated liquidity from credit and said, look, if you want to participate on Hedgepool, you bring along with you your credit relationships that you have. And we've got participating banks on FX Hedgepool. Um, we've got six banks already um, that are providing credit to our members through existing trading relationships. So they've agreed to say, look, I will accept your trades and put it on my balance sheet with no market risk. And this will be my price for doing so. And that price is now a fixed credit charge, which is again, distilled down to only what the costs are because we've taken all the market impact or the market risk away from the banks. So now you've got this, this pool of liquidity where buy side participants, passive hedgers, uh, it's, that's sort of how we're redefining peers. It's not so much about who you are, it's what you do. So it's, I am a passive hedger. Um, this, is, this, is, um, this is very um, predictable flow. This is non-toxic flow. It's, it's necessary. I, two sides put each other in and say, okay, I want to send my position, my matched position, uh, regardless of who the other side is, which peer um, or other buy side firm or firms I'm matching off against. I want to park my credit. I want to book my trade with Standard Charter or TD or Barclays based on existing trading lines that I have and the pipes that I have in my connections operationally with those banks. So that is what we've done. And now the, the benefit though to the, the buy side of doing this is, is we talk about a number of things. And when we started this two years ago, we thought this was gonna be all about cost saving. And that was sort of the theme. And that's what we understood to be why the buy side wanted peer to peer, right? This, we, we built this not because we, we just wanted to convince everybody that this was a better way, it's because we were listening. I mean, we could hear people in the market talking about peer-to-peer -peer and you know, there's a number of reasons why you would want that. Um, one is of course, cost savings, because if you don't have 10, 15 banks and enough credit to distribute out and enough of a, you know, a negotiating power to get a good price, you know, the, the cost or the spread is one element of the, the benefit. But what we found as we went through this, especially for larger managers, um, most people know that Vanguard is a big participant on FX Hedgepool. Um, you know, they, they get great pricing, right? So this isn't really about um, getting better pricing. It's about um, a number of other things. And this is not just a Vanguard, this is about many of the big managers. It's that their positions are so large that they need to start trading many days ahead of their benchmark in this case, month end, for example. So the problem is of doing that is now you're substituting better pricing for tracking error against you know, your benchmark that you're measured against. So even if you get a better price or you know, it's a different price than what you're being measured against, which is tracking error and volatility. So that's a cost. So this is sort of a trade-off here. And the other thing you're doing is you're breaking your trades up over many, many days so that you can go into the market softly without making a big, impact by throwing too much volume into the market and, and hurting the price against yourself. So market impact is a big benefit, but doing that also creates a lot of need for operational um, risk, right? You're breaking trades in many smaller trades. You have a staff that you're paying to do this, um, to manage monthly roles um, that, you know, would much prefer to be doing better things with their time. Um, so all of these things go into why the buy side really you know, wants to, to, to do it this way in a more automated way than having their team do this. Um, 
And quickly, the sell side, we assumed, you know, when we started this, that, you know, the sell side is going to hate this, right? Whenever you hear peer-to-peer in the market, the, you, you hear the, buy, the sell side quickly hear, hears disintermediation. And, and I was about, to, I was about to ask you that question. Because the FX markets, <laughs> yeah. however, you, however you look at it, are very bank-dominated. And in terms yeah. of genuine liquidity providers, are, it's, a very, it's, a, it's an oligopolistic market. There's a very small number of banks which are supplying... Uh, uh, genuine liquidity to the market. And I heard you say yeah. that you've solved the liquidity problem, but you leave the credit problem untouched. So uh, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about how, how the banks are, are, are responding to the proposition that you're advancing. Yeah, I, I think um, where we are today is very different where I thought we'd be um, and in a much better place than I thought we'd be, to be honest with you, because banks are actually responding positively. Um, and here's why. Um, and, and this is not always the case in not every trade, but these, these monthly rolls that, or quarterly rolls that the buy side are doing tend, especially ones in competition, tend to be very low margin trades for the banks. Uh, if they're in competition, they're you know, forced to be pricing at you know, close to mid anyways. And then there's a cost for them to hedge out of that position. So in, in many regards, they're, they're either Pricing these and winning the deals at such low margin that it's not very valuable, but the, the, the relationship is valuable, right? And then the next trade, the outright rebalance trade or the, the options trade, whatever it might be, the relationship is big enough and important enough that being there for these roles has, has sort of been part of the, been, been part of the story. Um, and so banks have not really been too um, upset about losing this flow. And they actually prefer to replace this flow with, or, or the market risk of this flow with a fixed annuity-like service, which is credit provision. So now what they've done is they've taken a very uncertain, sometimes they win it, sometimes they don't. So the volume that they're printing their ticket, their name on the tickets is varying month over month, right? And these banks are, um, you know, they, they look at things like their rankings, right? Amongst the asset managers, amongst their, their, their other clients, the corporates, the asset owners, uh, just generally in industry, they, they, they want to see that their, their volumes are growing in amongst their peers um, and having that volatility because of the market risk and being uncertain as to where they can get out um, or whether or not they can win that deal is, is a problem. So what we've done is said, look, you've got the balance sheet capacity. Um, you know, the banks that we're working with have large balance sheets. They've got great credit. So and the asset managers are saying, this is wonderful. I can now park um, you know, unused, um, I can start utilizing unused credit with banks that I use primarily for specialist liquidity. You know, a lot of Aussie flow, CAD flow that wouldn't normally see large positions in Euro dollar or dollar yen or cable. So they're able to sort of, again, loosen the constraints of trying to optimize pricing with credit right? Because those two don't always line up properly. You might run out of credit with the, the, the bank that has the best price. And so it's this constant optimization. So banks are actually finding that this is much more in line with their long-term goals of replacing uncertainty in market risk with products, services that create annuity-like revenues, which is exactly what this credit provision is. Okay, so go back to, to the, to, that's interesting. Thank you. To go back to the buy side, um, how difficult is it for them to, to work with you? What do they need to give you in terms of data? What do they need to have in terms of technology? Is this like a, 
a plug and play thing or do you need to be very large and very sophisticated and have a lot of control of your data and a lot of smart technology? Can anyone do this? Yeah, a, anyone can do this. It's, it's, it's great because it, I'm glad you asked that question because you know when we started this, um, again, going back to this whole disintermediation, the banks, FinTech, people sort of tag FinTech with disruption. And we said, we don't want that label. We, we want actually the opposite of that. Um, and that's not just in our business model that I just described. Um, you know, it's different, um, but we think it's a win-win for both the banks and the buy side in terms of the outcome, but also with respect to disrupting workflows. Uh, and we appreciate that there is a finite uh, amount of time and resources that both the buy side and the sell side have. Um, and there's not a lot of airtime for entertaining thoughts of giant integration projects. So nobody really wants to, to sort of have to change how they're doing things. So we've deliberately designed Hedgepool to be extremely low touch, um, actually zero integration required for use on day one um, as things evolve and grow and becomes more, um, you know, a larger component of the overall liquidity uh, of a manager or the sell side. We've then sort of moved towards integration um, so that the, audit, the process for trade communication is automated. But day one, everyone that, that's on the platform now, whether fully integrated or still sort of using it in this sort of manual way, uh, had zero integration whatsoever. Uh, simply put, um, you know, we, we, the, the nature of, how, of the trades that we're, you know, going, that, that we're targeting, these passive roles, quarterly or monthly, um, is that they're predictable, right? It, tomorrow's month end. Uh, and so for the roles that are occurring tomorrow, I mean, they knew last month that they'd be rolling this. What we roll tomorrow is a very good indication of what we're gonna be rolling at the end of March uh, and at the end of April and so on and so forth, subject to things like subscriptions, redemptions, of course, and you know market movements that sort of change the size of the exposures. But for the most part, if you're trading, if you're hedging 10 billion euros now, you'll probably be trading plus or minus 10 billion euros to, you know, the next month, the next month, the next month. So, you know, because of that, clients, basically members, what we call them, are simply saying, look, uh, you don't need to know I, I have exactly 10 billion, 180 million, blah, 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 blah. it's really, I have kind of like a voice trade saying, look, I, I know I need to cover off around 10, 10 billion. I'll put 10 billion into hedge pool as my position. Um, and as all of the other members do the same and they reset every month, just sort of roll over into the next month, um, you'll see, okay, my estimated matching uh, for these currency pairs, each, each a separate pool uh, is X. Uh, so it's either gonna be a hundred if you're on the smaller side or it's gonna be less than a hundred if you're on the larger side. And so our job is to make sure that if you're on the larger side, we're out there curating more flow, other passive hedgers in that can actually increase that percentage and, and increase the coverage. And of course, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna vary and, and you're gonna have this sort of leapfrog effect um, where we start to bring in other sides and now there's an imbalance here. So um, really that's it. It's, it's putting your interest in uh, and that's, we, we set the dates. Again, we're creating a, a, a defined liquidity event around month end and the quarterly IMMs and if there's interest, you put it in and we tell you as you approach the trade date um, under a very scheduled cadence, um, what your matching will be. So for example, tomorrow is month end, the book locked yesterday and pencils down, 
everything was committed and everyone knows exactly how much uh, matching they had and where they're going to be distributing their credit amongst the banks as of yesterday. So if someone had 10 billion and only eight was covered, now they have the remaining two days before month end to cover off the additional two yards. But prior to that, they had a very good indication of what it was looking like in case they needed to prepare for, for more. Um, so it's very much a relaxed cadence, which is the sort of beauty of the swaps market for passive hedging. Um, and we just kind of, that's, that's what we want to be, sort of the safe harbor um, place for, for you know, the buy side to, to, to match up their liquidity and let the sell side get paid. Again, you know, using that, that, that phrase, the win-win. Um, and a good example of the, the why, I mean, I think back to, to 2020, right? When we started this, um, we, we launched in January of 2020. Um, and it was, we had a few members who were just sort of coming in, testing the waters, seeing how things worked. Um, through February, same thing, a little bit of a boost. People were a bit more comfortable. Uh, but then, of course, when March hit and the markets, the volatility uh, came into play from, from COVID and the, the spreads blew out from the uncertainty. Um, and we were able to hold the line. I mean, really, because there's no market risk in what we're doing. Um, our costs or, our, you know, the, the fees to do the service, the matching fees and the credit charges were held stable throughout the year. So where you saw these giant spikes that, um, you know, throughout the year, completely, you know, protected from being able to match off with your peers. So, you know, it's really not just about today's spread. And can you get a better price in the market versus hedge pool or, you know, whatever it might be, because there is always going to be the case where a bank is willing to give you midpoint or a really aggressive price because they have uh, a natural axe or position on the other side where they can generate, you know, spread between the two. Um, you know, here um, that this is a long term cost savings because you're eliminating all of those uncertainties through time for flow that you really are just trying to do per your mandates. Mm -hmm. Now you're, you're making it sound very manageable, very predictable. There's rules of thumb, orders of magnitude. But if you're, you mentioned Vanguard, for example, Vanguard hasn't going to have a lot of funds. So, and those funds are going to be suffering subscriptions and redemptions. There's quite a lot of data flowing around here. There's, there's quite a lot of operational impact of doing all this, even if at the aggregate level, it all seems the area where you're seeing it, it all seems relatively straightforward. Are you getting involved in, in the operational end of the business at all, or is that staying with their custodian banks or fund administrators? Yeah, the operational side is as is. As is. We, 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 we work with overlay managers. If someone decides they, you know, they have an outsourced hedging program, whether it's share class hedging or portfolio hedging, uh, and they use an outsourced provider, at the end of the day, the outsourced provider uh, does two things. It, they do the management and maintenance of the hedging program, with all the reporting that goes along with it uh, and the calculations and they execute the trades and all of the reporting that goes along with that. And the, you know, in some cases, the responsibilities that go along with that. So I, th I know that there's a, there's a natural trend um, in the outsource space towards agency execution, right? It, where it used to be custodians who held and fund administrators who held the data for a fund um, and the you know, subscription redemption activity and all the things that necessary, all the inputs to a hedging program were in-house. So naturally you would outsource to your custodian. Um, and it was always a single bank principal dealing model. So you deal with the, the trading desk of your custodian. 
in a bit, you know, in a captive type model. Um, and for obvious reasons in the evolution of the market, um, you know, there's been more demand for, okay, we want competitive execution. We want a panel of banks to know that we have negotiating power or you're negotiating on our behalf uh, and not just accepting the prices of the single bank that you have available. Um, so, you know, outsource providers have the ability to direct flow per the mandate. So if you're a large asset manager and asset owner say, look, I want X bank on my panel or these five banks on my panel, they could very well just as well say, I'd also like you to use FX hedge pool liquidity for my monthly flows uh, because it gives me predictable um, you know, uh, outcome. So you know, that's where we come in. We, we definitely are not on the sort of calculation side of the, uh, of the service. Again, um, you know, there are really, really strong um, services out there and, and you know, there's no need for us to go out and try and recreate that. But you, but you are presumably having to report back to your clients on what you're doing and, and in particular report back to them on performance. How do you do that? So yeah, we, we've actually uh, engaged with BestX uh, as an independent TCA provider um, to mm -hmm. review the executions um, of, of hedge pool trades. Now, you know, it's not rocket science uh, around the TCA related to what we're doing because it's all fixed cost, right? So the way that we approach this with clients is say to participate on FX Edge Pool, you tell us which banks you want to work with. And based on the bilateral arrangements between you and those banks, um, there will be a credit fee determined, not by us, because it's, again, that's not our credit relationship. Uh, the bank will say, you know, X dollars a million is what it will, uh, is what we'll offer the credit service for. Uh, the client agrees, and we have a hedge pool fee on top of that that's fixed in the contract, and everybody knows exactly what the cost will be off midpoint pricing. So, you know, validating that we're doing that, of course, is, is, uh, is, is important, which BestX plays that role. But they also do something really um, valuable for us is, is comparing that fixed cost to what that trade would have otherwise cost in the market, the expected cost of that trade. And this is really valuable to show that, you know, the, a trade does not have the same expected spread on every trade day or month end or quarterly IMM. It's very much, a, a, you know, a function of the market volatility. So one of the things that they've done well is created an independent measure of what those expected costs can be so that we can validate, hey, look, this is the savings, um, you know, in good times and bad. Uh, of using hedge pool and avoiding all of those unnecessary costs um, of market trading. Now you've, you've explained that your market is, is, has grown to the extent that there's more hedging activity going on now than, than ever before. But as you, as you look forward, what's the, what's the growth potential you're seeing? Are there a lot of uh, potential clients out there who just happen to be doing hedging very inefficiently or very badly at the moment or have the, have the wrong arrangements? Do you, do you feel yourselves to be engaged in a rapidly growing market? I would say, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a rapidly growing market. There's a lot of attention being given to swaps right now because I think it's been an underserved market. Um, you've seen a lot of innovation in the spot space over the last 10 years and, and longer, um, you know, whether that's algos or peer-to-peer -peer and, and others. And I think for, you know, for a lot of reasons, the, the swap space has been largely left untouched. Uh, and I think the biggest reason is, is primarily the credit question, right? As well, do you need a prime broker to do uh, if you want to get, um, you know, some sort of 
liquidity, access liquidity that is otherwise not from the bank that you have an ISDA with? And the answer until now was yes. Um, so what we did in, in terms of our, our, I think, value proposition was this market structure question. We, we, we examined it, we looked at it and said, well, look, this, we know that these institutions are not prime broker users. They're just not. The, you know, they're not hedge funds. They're not CTAs. They're large buy side institutions that have bilateral arrangements with, with their um, you know, banks. So by nature, they have to be connected. You can only get pricing from the banks you have listed with. But we said, okay, if we kind of take the, the prime broker model, what, what is the prime broker model? The prime broker model is a centralized hub of credit to distribute or, or to be able to access a broad uh, distribution of liquidity. We said, well, why don't we flip that over and say, we're gonna create a centralized pool of liquidity and then allow members to access a broad distribution of credit. And by doing that is the first time that I think anyone's really been able to kind of, you know, break that tie between credit and liquidity with the banks that they get pricing from. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of growth potential now because we've just broken down a, a, a major wall that's prevented liquidity, passive liquidity from actually identifying each other and being able to do anything about it. Has, has regulation of the stocks market helped you or hindered you or had no impact at all? Uh, I wouldn't say, I mean, I would say that to some regard, the regulation in the swap market and the, um, I think just the general attention given to the swaps market and the emergence of things like central clearing, the, the focus on balance sheet costs uh, that banks have and kind of making these things a little bit more understood and measurable has enabled this model where five years ago, a bank I don't think would have ever considered um, offering credit as a, as a product. Whereas now it's something much more understood because of the regulatory environment we've been in for so long. Just one, one final question, uh, Jay. What do you say to people? It'd be very easy for your organization to fall into, oh, it's just another peer-to-peer -peer, uh, play in the, in the FX market. You've explained at some length that actually you're trying to do something slightly different from that. What's your, uh, your elevator pitch answer to people who come to you and say, you're just a peer-to-peer -peer network. We've seen a lot of those. What do you say to them? Yeah, I say, you know, we're focusing on a very different, you know, target flow. Right, the, the, the trades that we're going after, I mean, I, the, the idea of peer-to-peer -peer is, is really um, drawn a lot of people in. And I think mm -hmm. that there's a lot of great- um, Well, people think of it as just intermediating the banks, don't they? That's the sort right. of natural and I, first That's thought. a natural, right. And, and the, you know, the value proposition of peer-to-peer -peer is clear, right? I mean, being able to avoid market footprint at known costs from you know market spreads and things like that. The challenge has been, uh, and I think you know people are starting to um, you know emerge in this space, which is exciting. We we want this movement to continue, um, but the challenge I think has been dependability, and um, you know this this sort of predictable nature of what of what you do. And at the end of the day, you know this passive flow, we're creating a solution that enables passive flow to not just be matched as another liquidity source as part of a you know, very robust and, and onerous monthly or quarterly process, 
but that we can become the default. Oh, that just goes to hedge pool every month. And I know it's taken care of. So we're trying to allow um, not just better pricing, market impact, those benefits of peer to peer, but I think we're relieving the market of a lot of these operational um, difficulties that come along with this particular type of flow. I mean, there's very few managers or institutions that you'll speak to that look forward to their role process. And it's just not the best part of their job. And, you know, having somewhere dependable to, to sort of park it and know that it's just looked after and taken care of amongst a safe community of peers is really appealing and sustainable for the long run. So that's, that's really the difference, I, I think, of what we're doing. It's the nature of this flow. And, um, and I think what our goal is, is to create a center of gravity, a liquidity event that will draw others to really know that this is where those roles can occur without having to worry about it. If you had to choose between the word platform, the word exchange and the word network, which one would you favor? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say, you know, it is kind of an exchange. Um, it's not in a legal sense, of course, or, you know, framework, but it's really, um, it's just a place, it's a community. That's really what it is. It's, it's more of a community. Um, and, and this is one of the things that people ask me about a lot is, you know, what, what about things like clearing and blockchain and what happens when, you know, these things evolve? And you say, look, whether, whether you're bilaterally trading, settling through a bank or over blockchain or directly with your peers, whatever way, you still need this, this sort of uh, this community or this exchange um, to be able to discover each other. So that's what we want to be. We want to be that front end tool where we have, uh, where people can see where the, the liquidity is and, and, and match off um, safely. Um, and then they can distribute their settlements, however they, you know, however the market or where they evolve. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't describe that as a netting activity? It is, oh, it's absolutely a netting activity. And I mean, it's a good, um, you know, if you think about it now, right, there's, how do you net, right? If you're, if you're a manager, um, you may have hundreds of funds or dozens of funds where some are buying, some are selling euro, some are selling dollar. Um, and you would naturally try and compress that book before you go to market, right? And so then you go to your bank and say, well, uh, I, I have a bunch of buys, a bunch of sells, but I, I have to do a net of five. So I'll go to my banks and ask for five yards of euro dollar. Um, this is a way to say, well, I'm going to take that five euro dollar and see if I can net it with my peers. And then I only have a dollar, you know, I, I, have, I have a yard left, then I go to my banks. So this is a way to really, uh, uh, again, kind of, broaden the definition of what is netable, right? First within your institution, then within your peers, and then to the, to the street. Jay Moore, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks a lot, Dominic. It was a pleasure.